gotten sick in August. So November, December, I saw an infectious disease doctor talk to me for less than five minutes, order some blood work and sent me on my way. And so I left the appointment disappointed, but it wasn't until I got my medical records and I saw that he had written um, on my record that my illness was likely psychosomatic in nature. So basically saying that it was just in my head. And so I Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Ashanti Daniel is one of those people who knew their career destiny as a child and then made it come to fruition. As a nurse, Ashanti had the inside view of how the healthcare system operates. So when she got very sick and was hospitalized multiple times, she thought that being a healthcare worker would afford her legitimacy in the eyes of her medical peers. But Ashanti quickly discovered that being a black woman with normal results from routine medical tests trumped years of working as a healthcare professional. While medical gaslighting is endemic throughout the healthcare system, it is especially evident if you have a disease that has no biomarkers and you are a female of color. Ask anyone with a complex chronic illness and you will most assuredly hear a story of doctors denying the patient experience of their own body and instead attribute physical symptoms to psychological causes. And this is based on nothing except the doctor's biases, prejudices, and ego. For black female patients with a complex disease, it could be argued that the operationalized standard of care is gaslighting. As Ashanti experienced, a doctor can write whatever they want about a patient in the medical records. It doesn't have to be true. The amount of power doctors wield over people is the power of life and death. At their whim, they can deny testing, ignore a diagnosis, and label a person as mentally ill. In some jurisdiction, doctors can have a person committed to a mental hospital against their will. The medical system is a pathological mess, driven and controlled by a God-complex culture. Until doctors change their culture, there will continue to be, as long COVID patients are discovering en masse, many doctors that inflict great harm by disbelieving patients. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Just go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Nurse Ashanti Daniel, and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Ashanti's experiences in the healthcare system. Excellent. Thanks, Ashanti. So, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Los Angeles, California area. 
Okay. And is that where you're living now? I live in Beverly Hills, California. So basically right outside of Los Angeles. So yes. <laughs> okay. And so we're here to talk about your healthcare experience, but if memory serves, you are also have a career in healthcare? Um, I did have a career in healthcare before a chronic illness came knocking on my door um, <laughs> unannounced almost five years ago. So I like to classify myself as a disabled registered nurse um, because I worked really hard <laughs> to become a nurse. And so even though I'm too ill to work <clears throat> as a nurse or really in any capacity, um, I'm still a nurse and I will always be a nurse. So I like to, instead of saying former nurse, I like to say disabled registered nurse. So, <laughs> so uh, just backing up a wee bit, why did you go into healthcare and into nursing? What was your motivation? Let's see. Well, from the time that I was four years old, I said that I wanted to be a pediatrician. So that was something that I knew very early on. I attended a medical magnet high school and I was able to volunteer at the high risk premature infant follow-up clinic at a very large hospital here. At that time, I um, had my first experience in the neonatal intensive care unit, also known as NICU, and I fell in love. So I decided that I wanted to further my specialty from pediatrics into neonatology. Fast forward many years, life happened, and um, I ended up realizing that the role of nursing is more who I am because I love the day-to-day -day patient care. I love getting to know the families, um, having relationships with the families. And so I did end up in NICU as a nurse, <laughs> just not as a neonatologist, which is basically the NICU doctors. Um, I also took care of babies that were born with heart problems. So we called them, that was the congenital cardiac intensive care unit. And um, I loved it and I miss it every single day. Um, nursing is who I am um, at my core. <laughs> it uh, was my life's purpose or is my life's purpose. So it's been um, difficult to not be able to, you know, have my career anymore at this point. Yeah, that's a huge loss because careers make up so much of our identities often and so much of our time often. Um, but especially because since you were four years old, you, you knew what career path you wanted. So I'm sort of envious that you had that clarity at such a, a young age. But what happened that your career got cut temporarily short? Yes, please be temporary. Um, so in August of 2016, I was living my best life. I was working out vigorously five, sometimes six days a week. Um, I was a very active single mom, you know, night shift nurse, and I got sick with the virus and never recovered. So I like to use the analogy that um, it was like being hit by a train that I never saw coming. Because, I mean, you could have never told me that I was going to end up chronically ill. I was in my mind, and I was doing, quote unquote, all the right things. I was eating healthy. Um, I'm 40. I've never been drunk in my life. So it's like, I walked the straight and narrow. I've never tried any drugs, like none of that. So I thought that um, chronic illness could never come knocking on my door, but clearly I was wrong. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it can be a devastating reality when chronic illness sets in. So even though you've been exposed to chronic illness because of your career, um, it's a totally different experience when you have it yourself. But when you got the flu and you assumed like everybody who gets the flu that you're going to recover, take me on that sort of emotional journey as well as diagnostic journey. It actually wasn't the flu, <laughs> so let's, oh. let me correct that. Um, it was what we later found to be one of the enteroviruses, uh, more specifically one of the Coxsackie B viruses. And so for me, because I have a history of asthma, when I present it with respiratory symptoms, as Coxsackie B can do, it causes respiratory illness, um, it was assumed that this was just a severe asthma exacerbation, and which is basically a severe asthma attack, 
and they treated me in that way accordingly. So I received steroids, et cetera, all the various things that they throw at you when <laughs> you're in trouble with your asthma. Um, however, I had additional symptoms that were not consistent with asthma and I had had asthma since I was a child. And so I was very well-versed and familiar with asthma, how my asthma presented. And um, additionally, at the time that I became ill, I was working out vigorously five, sometimes six days a week. And I'm talking about like high intensity interval training. So jump squats, burpees, like all the things <laughs> that a lot of people hate I was doing. And my asthma was very well controlled. In fact, I only used my inhaler before the workouts, but I didn't need to use my inhaler outside of that. So it didn't make sense that this, whatever it was, was my asthma, especially when I had additional symptoms like voice hoarseness, I had weakness. And I mean, come on me, I was like so fit. How am I suddenly weak? That's never been consistent with asthma, even in the days where I had asthma exacerbations that landed me at children's hospital for a week or more, you know, I still didn't have this weakness. This was something that was um, new. Additionally, the voice hoarseness that never existed prior either. So when I first got sick and they were saying, oh, it's just your asthma. And so they're treating me for my asthma. Well, I'm not getting better. Normally, if this is asthma, then I should be responding to the steroids and the other things that they're throwing at me. And I wasn't. And I ended up hospitalized and for quote unquote asthma, although, you know, obviously it wasn't, but that's what they were thinking. And I hadn't been hospitalized for asthma since I was a teenager. So that again, didn't make sense. I was so healthy. I wasn't overweight. I don't have high blood pressure. I don't have diabetes, nothing else. So it just didn't make sense that this young woman in her thirties could be so ill from just an asthma exacerbation while she was in the best <laughs> health and shape of her life. It just didn't make sense. But anyway, they didn't have any other answers at that time. And that was of course the easy explanation. Well, it must be her asthma. So I ended up hospitalized um, twice actually in August, 2016. The first hospitalization was very short. They were thinking, you know, oh, we'll send her home with all these things and she'll, you know, recover. I didn't. Three days or so later, I was back in the hospital for a week and more testing ensued, but still, my pulmonologist was very adamant that this was just a severe asthma exacerbation that really knocked me down and I just need time to recover. And so I was like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> like, this doesn't quite fit that kind of, um, you know, I'm not 80 years old. I'm not, you know, overweight. I'm not, I don't have any of these other comorbidities that I mentioned earlier, high blood pressure, diabetes, or anything like that. Um, and I was healthy, so it just didn't quite make sense. But I knew that whatever was happening to my body was definitely more sinister than just asthma. Asthma had been a part of my life for a lot of my life and um, asthma and I had become friends. <laughs> you know, I knew the asthma. <laughs> I knew how to uh, navigate asthma life and, you know, as an adult, like I said, it was very well controlled. So like I said, me and asthma were friends. Whatever this was that was happening in my body wasn't my friend. <laughs> it was doing all kinds of things that I, I can't even remember all of the symptoms that I was experiencing because of course, with chronic illness, you have cognitive dysfunction. So some of my memory is intact, other pieces are not, but that's life with chronic illness. So, but I do know for certain there were a bunch of other bizarre symptoms that definitely were not consistent with asthma for me. And so that was of course scary. My dad died of um, something called dermatomyositis. And that um, for him, he had lung involvement only. So of course, at that time, I'm like wondering like if I now have dermatomyositis um, like my dad. So I was able to get my pulmonologist to order a special CT scan to at least evaluate and make sure it wasn't that. So it wasn't that, <laughs> we did get there. But once that was ruled out, then it was just kind of like, well, then, yep, see, it is your asthma. I'm like, that's it. So here we are, you know. And so um, I was grappling with that. And of course, when you have been someone who has been so healthy and you're suddenly 
um, not, <laughs> and there's no explanation is, you know, frightening, of course. And when there, I feel when you're a healthcare professional, like I am a nurse, then you think of all the worst case scenarios because you know of all the worst case scenarios, right? So you're like, oh God, I hope it's not this, this, like you're thinking all these um, horrible things. So <laughs> that wasn't exactly uh, enjoyable <laughs> to say the least. So um, that was my initial experience, I guess, with this illness. Well, yeah, so there's sort of like a couple of layers of trauma there. There's the trauma of getting a chronic illness and then the trauma of not knowing what's going on. And then another layer of they're not really listening to you and they're just saying, ah, it's your, it's your typical breathing problems. And so if I'm understanding correctly, they hadn't figured out that it was the Coxsackie virus yet. No, not yet. Okay, okay. So yeah. what happened next? Do they let you out of the hospital, I guess? Yeah, so I did get out of the hospital and I just still, you know, didn't get well. I was still too weak. I'm still, you know, spending the majority of my time in the bed aside from doctor's appointments. I mean, it was really, you know, a nightmare to say the least. And so, you know, I'm going back and forth to follow up with my pulmonologist and finally about... Three months into the illness, I was able to convince him, basically, because that's what it felt like I had to do, because I had been saying from the beginning, no, this is more than my asthma. And really, to me, if you just think about it, like, yeah, it, I mean, how would it just be her asthma and she's this sick? Like, I don't even feel like you need to be a healthcare professional to just you know, do the math there and, you know, yeah. two plus two makes four, right? So, um, but, you know, he was adamant that it was my asthma. And so I was finally able to convince him to refer me to an allergist because at this point I'm grasping for straws and I'm like, at least if I can get to, to some other um, specialist, maybe they can try to find answers for me, right? And so uh, the other piece is I at that time had HMO insurance. And with that, you are required to have a referral from a doctor in order to see a specialist. You gotta get a referral, get approval from the insurance company, then you can go. It's not like the PPO plans that are available where you can just make your own appointment. Cause if that had been the case, then clearly I would have made my own appointment and said, forget you, I don't need you. But I needed him to um, put in a referral for me at that time. And so I was able to see the allergist, the allergist um, who was actually still my allergist, he was phenomenal. He ran all kinds of tests and tests that I had never even heard of even being a healthcare professional myself. So I was found to have something rare, <laughs> um, but it didn't explain all of the symptoms, right? And so again, this is not something that I had prior to this virus <laughs> attacking my body. Um, so all of this came with the ME. Um, I know a lot of people say ME-CFS, but I prefer ME because I just hate the CFS component because it trivializes the illness. And especially since fatigue is probably my least problematic symptom, I would say, out of all of the symptoms that I have. So I just want to put that out there. But anyway. Um, and um, just for folks who aren't familiar with the acronyms ME and CFS, tell them what those stand for. So ME stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis, and then CFS stands for chronic fatigue syndrome, which I hate to even say those three words. <laughs> Let me just make that very clear because it definitely trivializes this illness and all of the many symptoms and challenges that come with it. So, yeah, um, so I've heard folks say that chronic fatigue syndrome sounds like an accusation, not a <laughs> diagnosis. Right, right. Yeah, like it's on the person who's ill and that, you know, yeah, they're just, no, there's so many negative things that come with those three words in any way. So I try to not associate myself with those. <laughs> Um, I prefer to use the myalgic encephalomyelitis or ME for short. So my allergist, he ran a bunch of tests and so I was diagnosed with something that's found this rare thing. And so, um, like I was saying, that explained some of my symptoms, but not all. 
So then I'm like, okay, well, we have some of the pieces of the puzzle, but there's still something else missing because this doesn't account for all of what I'm experiencing. And so I was again hospitalized in November, 2016. And that was over Thanksgiving. I think I was in the hospital for like nine days. Gotten sick in August. So November, December, I saw an infectious disease doctor. I literally spent less than five minutes with him or he spent less than five minutes with me. Um, he did not physically examine me. So he did not touch me at all, like nothing. He didn't check to see if I had weakness. I mean, nothing, just literally talked to me for less than five minutes, ordered some blood work and sent me on my way. And so I left the appointment disappointed, I would say. But it wasn't until I got my medical records and I saw that he had written um, on my record that my illness was likely psychosomatic in nature. So basically saying that it was just in my head. And so at that point, I was livid. I was heartbroken. I was devastated. I mean, there's just so many um so many words that come to mind about what I was feeling in that moment because I felt, well, I was, let me say this, before that experience, I felt because I am a nurse that I was somehow shielded from structural racism in healthcare that, you know, be, me being a nurse and quote one of them that, you know, whatever I said would carry more weight than Black women in general in healthcare because we're not believed, right? I'm a Black woman. Uh, this is a podcast, so maybe you guys aren't seeing me, but I'm a Black woman um, who is also a nurse. And I was naive and thought that maybe I would be shielded from or even immune to structural racism in healthcare because I am a healthcare professional. Well, that infectious disease doctor <laughs> showed me that uh, that wasn't the case. <laughs> Being a nurse does not trump the fact that I am a Black woman in America, period. And the implicit bias and the perception of Black women, especially in healthcare, is hmm, not the best, <laughs> for lack of it. It was just so disheartening i mean there are just so many words i can't even think of all of the words six sounds like what i was a, feeling in that betrayal moment. yes it did okay yes yeah, so that's the word i was looking for i couldn't find it because you know cognitive dysfunction but anyway um so yes it was a betrayal because it's like i thought we're on the same side i mean if there's such a thing as that you know like you're a healthcare professional i'm a healthcare professional like you know, and it's so damaging to put in someone's record that their real physical symptoms are made up in their head. And the thing is like, you didn't even take the time to physically examine me. So to even be able to have the audacity <laughs> to put this in your note without even doing a physical examination, first of all, the fact that you didn't do a physical examination is problematic in and of itself. I'm there to see you for a consultation. I am dealing with um, symptoms that no one has been able to explain thoroughly and I'm coming to you for answers. So the least that you should have done was to put your hands on my body and physically examine me and see you know, what was going on. You didn't. So you failed, <laughs> for lack of a better word, you failed as a physician and then to put on my record that I'm making it up. Well, how, how could you conclude that without even having done a thorough investigation or examination or any type of examination, let alone thorough. And so I wrote him a very, um, let's see, firm, <laughs> it was professional, but a very firm email telling him how inappropriate what he wrote was. And I did tell him that you know, at least if it had been my primary care doctor, who at the time that I became ill had been my primary care doctor for 14 years. So he knew me very well. He knew I wasn't a malinger. He never wrote anything like that in my, in my um, medical records. Let me just make that clear. He's been awesome from the beginning because he knew me well. He's like, no, this is not the type of patient that's going to be pretending, but like she has a lovely life that she um, living. It's her best life. And, you know, she's a single mom with kids and all of this. Like, no, she wouldn't be faking this. So, but I did tell the infectious disease doctor, 
if you had at least been my primary doctor with years of, you know, me as a patient, then maybe you would have a little bit of a leg to stand on to come to this conclusion, but you don't even know me. You've never seen me before. You saw me for five minutes in your office, didn't touch me. So you didn't even examine me. You sent me on my way. And then you say, oh yeah, she's making it up. Like that is completely out of line, complete. I was just I mean, I was floored really. I could not believe my eyes when I read it. Um, I will say though, that he was very apologetic and he did um, append my um, medical record and took that out. So I was able to get um, a fair <laughs> resolution to that. He acknowledged that um, he was out of line. Um, and so I'm grateful for that, but it still left a very, sour taste in my mouth. Um, again, for lack of better words, sometimes there's words I'm looking for and they just aren't there because you know, chronic illness brain. So yeah. I'm very <laughs> so, familiar with that. <laughs> right. And so, you know, hey, this is my life. Um, I know when people are recording or whatever the idea is to be, you know, perfect and have it all together. But this is really life with chronic illness. I can try to pretend like, oh yeah, it's not that bad. It is. <laughs> um, and not only am I physically impacted, but I am cognitive, cognitively impacted. And for the most part, I can fake it until I make it when I'm speaking verbally, but sometimes I have trouble and there are words that I'm looking for, they're not there. <laughs> there are things I'm trying to remember, they're not there. Train of thought, not there. And I know a lot of healthy people will say, oh, well, that happens to me. Okay, well, when I was healthy, that never happened to me. <laughs> when I was healthy, I had a mere photographic memory. So this that I'm experiencing and have experienced since becoming uh, chronically ill is completely contrary to what I experienced when I was healthy. So for me, this is a drastic change and there's more pieces to it. But I mean, if we have time, I can go into that. But if not, it's fine. But just know that this is not normal for me in any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> this is very different and very sharp contrast to the person that I was and the brain that I had before chronic illness <laughs> knocked on my door. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard for people to understand cognitive impairment or brain fog unless they've experienced it because right. it's such a, a, a thing that you have to experience to understand it. It's a lived experience right. thing. It is. Um, but yeah, it, it can be so uh, limiting cognitively, right. but also undermining of how we feel confident and competent in how right. we speak and communicate. Right. So you get, uh, you get the infectious disease doctor and he does run tests. Did those tests show anything? No, he just ran basic ID tests, right? Like tests I didn't even need, but fine. I'm like, run everything. At this point, I don't care. I'm like, run everything. I want to find out, you know, I think he tested me for parasites. I think maybe Lyme. I think maybe, in fact, I know he tested me for HIV and something else. I can't remember the other tests, but anyway, all those were negative. But but not <laughs> testing for the Coxsackie. No, he actually didn't. He didn't, that didn't even occur to him or any of that. Again, I mean, in his mind, he already made a conclusion. When I showed up in his office, he already decided that I was making this up. I'm just going to pacify this patient and order these few blood tests and send her on her way. I don't think that he ever intended to try to help me get answers because he had already drawn a conclusion before. I mean, as soon as he saw me. And so then the next specialist I saw was a neurologist, I'm pretty sure. Now, again, I may be getting the order, you know, out of order a little bit, but this is all within a nine month period. Let's just say that within the first nine months of my illness, but I believe neurology was next. They were useless. <laughs> um, I hate to say that, but the first neurologist that I saw was useless. I have had thyroid disease since I was a teenager. And so, you know, no big deal. Everything was fine. My thyroid levels, at the time that I became sick, my thyroid levels have been within normal range for years. I was on the same dose of medication, everything was fine. However, 
when I became sick, like I said, this virus launched an assault on my entire body. So my thyroid levels were suddenly out of whack. And my endocrinologist, who's also my primary doctor, we couldn't figure out why this was bizarre because for years, my thyroid levels have been within normal. I have been on the same dose of medication. We were all fine. So this <laughs> virus <laughs> triggered that to go out of whack. Um, so maybe there was some kind of signal being sent maybe from my pituitary gland and yeah it was a mess so anyway yeah so that's what happens though because these viruses people don't really realize that when you get a virus and particularly if you end up chronically ill it literally launches an assault on your whole body like your brain and everything else so um something was happening because there was no other explanation for why all of a sudden now my thyroid levels are out of whack and so anyway the neurologist that i saw I believe they tried to blame my symptoms on my thyroid levels being out of range. And I'm like, no, I've had thyroid disease for a long time because <laughs> at this time I was in my thirties, I'd had it since I was a teenager. And even when my thyroid levels were at the worst possible level, I never felt like this. So it's definitely not that. <laughs> and they were in range until I got sick. So something is going on there. I mean, there has to be an explanation for this, but they just didn't feel willing to find out <laughs> in my opinion. And so um, they didn't. So they sent me on my way. And so I even, I saw a cardiologist cause I was having, you know, heart palpitations, which yes, you can have heart palpitations with thyroid disease. However, this was different. So again, I've had thyroid disease. I know what that feels like. This was something that was different that I wasn't able to um, explain or attribute to my thyroid levels being out of range. So I did see a cardiologist. I saw um, a gastroenterologist. So they deal with your like digestive system. For those of you who don't know what a gastroenterologist is, um, I saw a bunch of specialists. I can't even remember all the number of specialists I saw, but then I ended up... Um, Let's see, my primary doctor, again, he was and is awesome. He was determined to help me get some answers, whatever he needed to do. He was supportive and I am extremely grateful to him for that um, because I know that's not the story for a lot of people with chronic illness, especially when it's these illnesses that are difficult to explain. There's no specific test for it, et cetera. And so I was hospitalized again in... April of 2017 and I was in there for like 16 days or something and so after that appointment I I mean after that hospitalization I was able to get an appointment with a ME specialist here in Southern California um, now I will say that in this whole entire country there are very few ME specialists so if you are fortunate enough to live near one you have basically hit the jackpot um, especially if you live near one that actually takes insurance because some of the ME specialists are cash pay only and that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> I won't even go into that. Did, what prompted you to seek out an ME specialist? So actually it wasn't me. Um, of course, throughout the course of my illness, I was researching, trying to figure out what was going on. I'm asking for all these various tests, like maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And I know, you know, there can be some genetic component. And with my dad dying of that, um, autoimmune disease. I'm like, you know, let's investigate further. Maybe there's, you know, something there. And so anyway, my sisters actually found ME and they both separately, and they hadn't talked to each other, sent me links about it. And one of those links had this doctor's information in it. So I'm like, oh, this sounds like me. Let me make an appointment, like just to see, because at this point I'm still grasping for straws. I've been in and out the hospital more times than I care to count and remember. And although I do remember them, but you know what I mean? And so, you know, we're looking for answers. I'm like, help. And so I was happy to have like, okay, well maybe there's an answer. I had no idea what ME actually meant. You know, oh, there's no FDA approved treatment. There's no cure there. You're just screwed. So I ended up finally getting an appointment to see him 
sooner than I was supposed to because he has a, at that time he had a six month wait six month wait for an appointment but I was able to see him in less time and ironically he diagnosed me with ME on International ME Awareness Day so that was kind of like wow he was awesome because clearly he knows about ME he's and he's actually an infectious disease doctor as well but he's well versed on you know ME and the I will say not everyone's ME is post-viral, however, mine is. And so he was very knowledgeable and he was the one who actually uncovered that it was the Coxsackie B virus, which I will say I know where I was exposed, but I'm not going to um, (laughs) divulge where. Let's just say there was a no, I know exactly. I mean, it made perfect sense. It all came together like, oh, yes, no wonder. (laughs) Okay, so it all made sense. It's just that the time that I became sick because they assumed it was asthma, no one tested me at that time. They should have, it would have come up. So, and I think something that people should understand about post-viral ME is that I'm not contagious. You're not going to catch Coxsackie B virus from me or anything like that. But it is still active in my body, I guess, basically. I mean, it is. There's no I guess. It is. And so it is contributing to, you know, me not being able to recover ultimately. And I think that, you know, there's, there hasn't been enough science. Let me say that there haven't been enough research studies. The NIH has not allocated enough research funding to this disease. So they're not entirely sure how all the pieces work together, but, you know, several specialists, scientists, and researchers have these theories. Most even a virologist would agree that if you've gotten a virus, you're still ill, then the virus is active in some way in your body, you know, even on just a cellular level that isn't, you know, contagious to the rest of the world. Yeah, I compare it to HIV, you know, I I have HIV, and so I take three HIV medications every day. Yet in spite of that, there's still some HIV lingering in my body somewhere because if I stop taking it, it comes back full blown. Um, So why wouldn't other viruses also still linger in the body? Um, If I remember correctly, Coxsackie virus, because I also tested positive for that one, Uh, it's an enterovirus so it's in our gut usually or primarily it's an enterovirus but there are I want to say hundreds there's a lot of enteroviruses so (laughs) there's some that we don't even have names for as far as I know now the science might have improved since I last researched but as far as I know there are many that we don't even know or we haven't even put a name to we have lots of antiviral medications, but we don't have any anti-enteroviral medications. Right. There aren't any specifically for this, no. In spite of there being over a hundred different enteroviruses, including (laughs) polio. Yes, yes, polio is an enteroviral. That is correct. They used to call ME atypical polio. I think I did know that. I have forgotten that actually, but yeah, that is correct. Uh, Now that you got that ME diagnosis and could attribute it to Coxsackie virus and you know when you got it, that would sort Mm -hmm. of complete the picture. But what was it emotionally like to get the ME diagnosis and then to find out, like you said, there's no treatment, there's no support, there's no research, there's nothing devastating and that's probably an understatement i sobbed (laughs) at the appointment for people who don't know me i am not someone that would be considered a quote-unquote crier so for me (laughs) to be sobbing in public because that's in public i'm at an appointment like with a doctor that i've never met before and uh, my daughter was with me and my sister and i sobbed at the appointment i was completely like i mean at first i was like oh this is great i got a diagnosis good so what are we gonna do to get me back to my old life like my life is passing me by i'm in a hurry anxious to get back to my old life my career all of this and then when it was like, oh yeah, but there's no treatment, there's no cure, there's no research, you're just kind of 
screwed. So yeah, you're screwed. And so I was distraught. I mean, I, I was not, I mean, I think as a nurse, I feel like I had so much trust, I guess, in the healthcare system. Well, that's of course before the infectious disease doctor who was horrible, but, um, and the neurologist that was horrible. It just never occurred to me that there could be an illness where there was nothing, no FDA approved meds, not one, no cure, no, at that point, no even hope for a cure because there's not research being done. If there's no research being done, you're definitely not going to get a cure. I, I mean, it just felt like a sucker punch to the gut. I mean, it was just, I, you're grieving. It's a grieving process. It's like a death, really, the death of your old life and life as you knew it. And having to grapple with that and grapple with the loss of a career that you, that I, you know, held so near and dear to me. And also in a society where value is placed on what you do in life, what your career is, because I mean, that's one of the first questions people ask you, oh, what do you do for a living? What's your career? Like, you know, and then when you're disabled, like you have to be like, oh, well, I'm disabled, <laughs> but I used to be a nurse. Like, and so, yeah, I mean, it's hard. And then there's, you know, the stages of grief. It really is truly like in line with loss. I mean, it, there is loss because it's the, the death of the old you, the old, healthy, career-driven for me, physically fit, fitness enthusiast, very active single parent, all of that is gone. And so with all of that loss on those different levels, social, emotional, financial, career, etc., how have you transitioned out of all of that loss? Or in other words, how are you making meaning now? but I made it a point to focus on the silver linings instead of focusing on all the things that I lost because if I focused on all the things that I lost, oh, I would be depressed, crying every day, all day. Like, I mean, it would just be, this illness has taken away so much. I mean, it's even hard to quantify all the things that um, this illness has taken from me, but I have chosen to focus on the silver linings and I have found some new meaning in life um, and advocacy work for the chronic illness community, you know, mostly the ME community, but I feel like the chronic illness community in general needs advocacy, awareness, representation, and most specifically BIPOC. So that's um, black and indigenous people of color. And as a woman of color, a black woman, um, that has been near and dear to my heart as well, because we are not well represented in the chronic illness community in general, unless it's something like lupus, you know, or sickle cell or something like those are things that are very associated with black people, but things like ME, which black people are impacted by ME, we just, I mean, there's so many things can't get diagnosed because doctors don't believe us and all of this on a bigger scale than people who aren't black. And so um, I have made it I guess my life's purpose is <laughs> to raise awareness and make a mark for chronic illness warriors. And of course, um, as much as my illness allowed, because of course my illness dictates every single moment of my life. So um, there are times where there has been advocacy that I wanted to participate in and I just wasn't able to because this illness didn't allow it. So, but that has been some sense of um, renewed purpose and something to look forward to, um, it doesn't erase my desire to return to nursing, like actively working as a nurse. Um, it does not make me miss nursing any less. <laughs> I still miss my nursing career every single day, but it does help me. And I'm also in therapy. I have a therapist that I see that's wonderful. And I think that's really important, whether you're chronically ill or not, but especially if you're chronically ill, because it is a lot to grapple with. So for even the quote unquote strongest soldiers. <laughs> so it really sounds like uh, in spite of all of those different levels of trauma you experienced with this whole diagnosis and the medical system and being a black woman in a white dominated medical system, that in spite of all that trauma, you've, you're going through post-traumatic growth 
making meaning out of your experience as opposed to, like you said, going down that hellish rabbit hole. Right. So if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, where would they find you? They could find me on Instagram. I am at Ashanti RN. So that's very easy. Ashanti registered nurse, basically. I am on Twitter at Ashanti RN as well. So basically on all the social media, that is my handle. And I am very transparent about my journey with chronic illness on my social media. I answer all DMs, but you know, please have grace because I am chronically ill. So I may not get to them same day or even, you know, in a couple of days, but I do answer all of them at this point. So, uh, and I hope to be able to continue to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll include links to your Instagram and to your Twitter in the show notes so people have those links as well. Uh, we've been chatting now for almost an hour. How's your body holding up? Um, so far, it's okay. What I find for me um, in terms of my ME, oh, there are days where, of course, like I'm bedridden. I can't, you know, there's nothing happening. But if I feel a little decent, like in this moment, it isn't, I don't feel the effects of this because I think people, you know, they see me and I'm, pretty energetic and vibrant when I'm speaking, but the after effect is bad. <laughs> like, so I'm typically very unwell for, you know, sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's three days, sometimes it's a week. But the problem is in the moment, I don't necessarily feel unwell. So it's, it's, it's a trick basically, because it's like, oh, you feel pretty decent. You're talking and, you know, this is something you're passionate about. And then the next morning you wake up and you're like, oh God, there's always payback. So that's the thing with this disease. Um, it's always a sacrifice and um, don't be misled by the fact that I appear to be vibrant and energetic on this podcast or any other speech that I've done um, because there is payback that comes with that every single time without fail. Yeah, that's the, one of the unique things about ME is the right. delayed dysfunctional response to physical and or cognitive exertion. Right. And it can be really hard for patients to link, how come I feel so sick today to link it to what they did yesterday? Right. And if it's hard for patients to make that connection, you can imagine how much harder it is for a doctor who's unaware of ME right. and, and this hallmark <laughs> symptom, how hard it is for them to make the connection. And then healthy people, they definitely can make the connection. And for those of you who care to know, that hallmark symptom is called post-exertional malaise. And it is, like Scott said, um, classic to ME. Yeah, sometimes you don't even know what triggered it because you can do for example, I can do the same thing today and have post-exertional malaise, let's say for three days, but then I can do this same thing next week and then have post-exertional malaise for a week. And so there really isn't a rhyme or reason. It's very difficult to figure out like, okay, what's my threshold? Like where, you know, did I go too much? But sometimes you do the exact same thing and you end up with two different results. So, um, and for me, I wanted to mention, I don't think I did earlier on, I also have a rare form of dysautonomia that again was not present before <laughs> ME. This came with ME and it's called autoimmune autonomic neuropathy. Now there are a lot of people with ME that also have POTS, which falls under the dysautonomia umbrella. However, I'm such a unicorn. <laughs> Mine is actually autoimmune autonomic neuropathy. And so it took a very skilled, very caring neurologist to figure that out. <laughs> this is okay. not the first neurologist. <laughs> I've not heard of that before, but neuropathy, I think, means pain. It's actually numbness and tingling in my hands and feet, but I have this. So dysautonomia, for people who don't know, is a dysfunction of your autonomic nervous system. So your autonomic nervous system controls the things that you don't think about, like your heart rate. You don't think about that, right? Like it just does what it does right automatically you're normal right exactly so all the things that your body does automatically that's controlled by your autonomic nervous system and so mine doesn't work properly and so one 
very good example of that that I hope and think that healthy people can relate to that I like to use is when I take a shower, number one, I have to shower sitting down. If I attempt to shower standing, I will pass out on the shower floor and that wouldn't be good. But even more crazy, I guess, is while sitting in the shower, my heart rate is usually in the 140s to 150s. And so for a normal adult, your heart rate should be between 60 to 100 beats per minute at rest. And showering, sitting down is at rest, it should be. So just to get an idea, my heart is racing just taking a shower while I'm sitting. I'm not even standing up. So just, you know, get that in your mind. I'm sitting on a shower chair and my heart is racing. Like I am running full speed ahead, running for my life and I'm not. That's one of an example of the dysfunction in my autonomic nervous system because that shouldn't be happening. I'm in the shower, my heart rate should be between 60 and 100. That's what it used to be when I was healthy and I would be standing up. Yeah, your body's a mess. It's a mess, thanks to the virus that triggered all this mess. <laughs> so yes, I'm quite the unicorn. I've had a, a lot of doctors say, oh, I've never seen this before, or I've been in practice for 40 years. I only had one other patient. So I'm like, oh yeah, thanks. You're special. <laughs> I am special. I'm a unicorn. I'm rare. I like to use the positive thing because I think unicorns are awesome. So <laughs> they're rare. <laughs> I'm rare and awesome. <laughs> I'm a unicorn. That's an excellent <laughs> reframing. So thank you so much, Ashanti, for sharing your story and for the work you're doing in the community to raise awareness around me, ME and BIPOC folks, because um, it's so important that we get some sort of equity in this messed up healthcare system. It's a mess, a mess. So enjoy the rest of your day and rest thank hard. You. Well, a big thanks to Ashanti for sharing her experiences and be sure to connect with her on social media. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Just go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.